The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station. Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science. And I want to start off tonight with some good news. So it turns out that sanity has briefly uh, been restored to allow the first all-girl robotics team from Afghanistan to obtain visas for the United States so that they can compete in the first global um, which is a organization, um, their robotics competition. And so First Global, quote, organizes a yearly international robotics challenge to ignite a passion for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics among the more than 2 billion youths across the world. And so these are some pretty amazing young women. They've had to deal with several setbacks and all sorts of delays and um, uphill battles, but they never gave up hope. Um, And in fact, they had been planning just to send their robot um, by itself, but luckily they don't have to do that. And so they had already had issues with importing components, for instance, that they required and ended up having to craft some of their own items from scratch to complete their robot. And they had already had to travel cross country two times to work on getting their visa. And so a statement from their page on the uh, competition website states in part, we want to make a difference. Most breakthroughs in science, technology, and other industries normally start with the dream of a child to do something great. We want to be that child and pursue our dreams to make a difference in people's lives. They also note that, As a dedicated group of students, mentors, and volunteers, we aim to transform the culture of our community through the STEAM program and become some of the young leaders of science and technology. We want to develop and explore our minds and creativity and maybe unveil the genius inside of each one of us. So please join me definitely in wishing them the very best of luck. Um, I'm very happy that that uh, situation has resolved. It is one of those situations where a little bit of bad publicity apparently can make the wheels of sanity turn back round um, because there is certainly no reason to think that any of these young women who just want to uh, compete are any kind of threat to this country. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about a really interesting uh, news item. It turns out that the Dutch Organization for Scientific Research, um, which is uh, which has the um, name NWO, it's called by NWO, which is of course something in Dutch, which I am not fluent in. <laughs> um, they announced on Wednesday that they ha- are making a three million. Um, euro donation, not donation, I'm sorry, they have set aside 3 million euros for a pilot program 
of their new project, which seeks to award grants specifically for replication studies. And this is huge. This is the first um, of its kind. So while replication is the cornerstone of science, in recent years, it's been revealed that too often there is no mechanism for such replication to happen. Most researchers are busy trying to create new work that will be published, and publishers have traditionally shied away from replication studies because they don't have new and breakthrough information necessarily. If you do a replication study and it shows, yeah, that's exactly what we got, just like the other people, that's not interesting enough. Um, And so such studies are not generally um, pursued as much as they should be. And so the idea for the project came from cognitive psychologist Daniel Lockins at Eindhoven University of Technology. And so Lakins wrote in a paper from, 20, from 2012 that there was a lack of replication studies in the psychological studies. And of course, that's kind of been something that's been in the news recently in recent years. And so um, he felt that an increase in such studies would help the field. And so he later challenged the NWO to fund his idea. And so although the NWO has made the challenge broader than Lakin's original proposal, he's optimistic. I hope something will happen with the results. Guidelines might have to be changed, or in case of a confirmation, some doctors will be able to sleep a little better. And so um, he went on to say the large number of applications, 85, shows that there is a need for this t- for these types of studies. Um, and he said, I hope more countries will follow soon. And so on the website for the NWO, they state that the aim of the pilot program is to increase the transparency of research and to improve the quality and completeness of reporting of research results. With the pilot program, NWO wants to gain experience that will provide insight into how replication research studies can be effective, effectively included in all research programs, which is an extremely worthy goal. And so it's really interesting to look at the sort of cross-section of proposals that they have. And so the nine proposals that have been funded are, um, first off, a study that revealed a lower mortality um, among intensive care patients in whom the oxygen pressure in their veins was kept lower than usual. Um And then there is a study that looks at the first attempt to explain the neural basis of successful self-control in humans, which is especially significant since neuroscience um, is particularly light on specific replication studies. Another study will look at the chances of young adults moving from e-cigarettes to actual cigarettes, which is a definitely a worthy thing to uh, revisit. Uh, one of the one on the influence of the thyroid hormone on human pregnancy, one that looks at the twin birth study, which in 2013 suggested that delivering twins via cesarean section did not improve pre- perinatal health or mortality. Another um, looks at a study which suggests that staying in a natural setting has a stress-reducing effect, which was originally the largest experiment ever carried out in the field of environmental psychology. Now, this one, of course, 
some may say uh, this is rather self-evident, um, but it's still important to continue to check our assumptions and to applaud efforts to recreate such work. It can be especially um, easy to not try and replicate the kinds of studies that make sense to us because just because it actually sounds logical doesn't mean it actually follows. And so it's a great thing to see a replication study of the kind of uh, result that I would think is kind of a no-brainer um, because it's important to challenge that idea. And so another will look at the so-called Ten Commandments effect, which suggests that reminding someone of moral standards leads to a reduction in deception. And one that I'm actually very interested in is a study on the difference in the number of male and female mathematicians, which suggested that anxiety to fill to fulfill a stereotypic image was a contributing factor to this issue. And finally, a study exploring the connection between pupil constriction and dilation, which suggested a link between pupil size and personal interest in humans. And so what's interesting is that this is the oldest study that will be replicated, and it's considered a landmark study in the field of human-machine interactions. With 625 citations uh, since it was published in 1960 by Eckhart Hess and James Polt, uh, then of the University of Chicago in Illinois. And um, a citation obviously is, um, or in case you don't know, um, is when another paper uses your information in their paper and then they say, we read this paper and that's how we knew this. <laughs> um, and but the thing is, is that there actually have been doubts over the year as to what years, whether or not the content of the image, such as babies or naked figures, was at the heart of the change in pupil dilation and not some other factor, such as the color or contrast of the image. And so Juiced de Winter of Delft University will replicate this study. And this is the cool thing. He'll replicate, his group will replicate replicate it not only using current technology with computer screens and eye trackers, but will also use the exact same materials used by Hess and Polt, um, because luckily they are currently stored at the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology at the University of Akron, Ohio. It will be more than just a replication, DeWinter says. It will be an Extremely interesting to have a good look at the original data and figure out how exactly the original authors worked. Um, and so that sounds really cool to me. And uh, Lakin's the original impetus for this project, um, again, hopes that other countries will follow the Dutch example and fund their own replication studies. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the results of these studies. Um, and so, yeah, that's really interesting and cool. Um, and that the pupil um, dilation study is also another one of those kind of uh, intuitive studies that it sounds really intuitive that, you know, your eyes widen uh, when you see something that is interesting. Um, and we've all heard that before and we've all um, experienced it before or so we think. Um, and so I think it's really cool to be able to look at that from both a historical perspective and 
a uh, technological perspective from the, our current understanding of how to look at these sorts of um, things. <laughs> okay, um, so let us go on now and talk about the first large-scale study of brain training games. And so it comes out, it, ha it has come out, and it's another study with not great news for the companies that make these games. The study, published this past Monday in the Journal of Neuroscience, looked at 128 young adults who either played Lumin Lumosity brain training games or regular video games for 10 weeks. There was also, importantly, a control group who did not play either of the games assigned. The two active groups played either the brain training or video games five times a week for 30 minutes. They were tested periodically via a variety of mental challenges such as immediate reward versus long-term benefit choices, risk avoidance, memory, focus despite distraction, and cognitive flexibility. In a rather whimsical mood, um, move, they tested the cognitive flexibility of subjects through measuring how quickly a subject responded to goose in a game of duck, duck, goose. <laughs> and so what they found was that, the that um, both of the groups responded with similar improvements as time went on. There wasn't any statistically significant difference between those who did specific brain training and just played a video game. And what they additionally found was that the control group that did neither also got better at the tasks over time, which suggests that repeating the tasks, regardless of other stimulus, is what led to better outcomes. And of course, that's interesting, but as with all things in science, there are several caveats. First, you have to realize, or we have to discuss the fact that it was conducted with healthy young adults, which the majority of studies are uh, done with, which is a separate problem um, to talk about in uh, science but uh, obviously there may be in there may indeed be different outcomes in different age groups or groups with differing level levels of cognitive function and despite being a large sample size it was a short study it may be that over a longer period of time the groups branch off with those who practice the brain training eventually winning out but let's go back and look at what the study was really looking for. So Karen Lerman and Joseph Cable of the University of Pennsylvania wanted to see if brain training games could help people to control risky or impulsive behavior. Their area of study is the Executive Control Network, or the ECN. The ECN is part of the brain important in self-control, planning, and goal-setting. And so when we're working on something and concentrating, the ECN will light up on a brain image or a brain scan. Since other studies had suggested that cognitive exercises like those in brain training games can increase the activity in the ECN, the researchers wanted to test if this would then translate into real world improvements. Unfortunately, at least in young adults, this doesn't seem to have had an effect on the ECN that was measurable. 
And even in adults, while it may have a greater effect, it's not clear that it would have a significant effect. It just doesn't follow from the current research that paying for specialized brain training games is worth it. And in fact, Lumosity has had to walk back on, already had had to walk back on some of its claims about the amazingness of its product. Uh, a couple of years ago, they've already, they already had to do that. Uh, they were claiming that it could help you with things that it just could not do. And so if you're thinking about purchasing something like this, don't bother. <laughs> uh, just continue to do whatever else you are doing. And so Cable uh, told the Washington Post, what we're all searching for is a silver bullet to improve our cognitive ability. But it doesn't seem like this is it. Interestingly, um, in contrast, Tim Bogg, assistant professor of psychology at Wayne State University, when asked to comment on the study, noted, being actively engaged in life is much more likely to be associated with healthy cognition than sedentary time devoted to improving one's performance on a computerized game. Another sort of, yeah, that probably makes sense kind of moment, but it is important to look at these things because potentially something like this could be a silver bullet. But in the end, it turns out that the only thing that almost always improves by repeatedly playing a game is your ability to play that game. <laughs> okay, so let's talk for a moment now. Let's switch gears um, and talk about some issues in our current culture and its rather tenuous interest in objective truth and reality. Now, I obviously try and keep this show as light as possible um, because I want you to be interested in science, to care about science, and to understand its value. But sometimes I feel that I have to really delve into why I, in my darker moments, feel like I can be screaming into the void when I tell people to do things like vaccinate their children, buy conventional food products, that may be made with GMO ingredients, and that modern medicine is actually meant to heal you and not hurt you. And so a couple of stories, the first from actually kind of a different uh, end of the spectrum than the other two, have struck me recently. And so the first is the lamentable petition by Andrew Snelling of the Young Earth Creationist Organization Answers in Genesis. In 2013, he requested permission from the National Park Service to collect rock samples for a quote-unquote study on how the Grand Canyon was actually caused by Noah's flood rather than by the slow passage of time and the erosion effects of water and wind. Now, technically, I say that he wanted to study how the Grand Canyon was formed by Noah's flood, but... That's kind of a misnomer because he already believes that. And as we will find out later, that is something that won't change at all. And so he specifically wanted to collect rocks from structures in sedimentary formations known as soft sediment deformations. And so those are portions of sediment layers that are in the process of becoming rock. 
His hypothesis is that all folding rock is that is present in the world is caused by the layers folding while they are still soft sediment rather than once they have become rock and are eventually folded by intense pressures and, um, you know, things like plate tectonics. He states that his findings, he, he did state that his findings would be published in a peer-reviewed journal, but failed to mention that he most likely means in the Answers Research Journal, which is the journal that Answers in Genesis created and of which Snelling is editor-in-chief in order to try to claim legitimacy for their work. And so the National Park Service sent his proposal out for peer review by mainstream academic geologists. And the scientists found that his proposal was obviously influenced by his creationist ideas and did not show any indication that the work would, imp- would provide value to the field of geology or science in general. Reviewer Carl Karlstrom of the University of New Mexico pointed out that soft sediment formations can be found throughout the world and thus did not need to be collected in the canyon. However, the Grand Canyon has become something of a talisman to young earth creationists who insist it is the best and most obvious evidence for the reality of the Noachian flood. Snelling has previously done research in the canyon and actually works as a tour guide with Canyon Ministries, an organization that sells rafting trips that point out supposed evidence of Noah's flood. So after a few years of fighting with the park over this proposal, Snelling ended up suing the National Park Service uh, this past May with the help of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian law firm that interprets freedom rather idiosyncratically, as far as I'm concerned, as allowing Christians to do virtually whatever they want, free of consequences and in defiance often of church-state separation. Of course, this entire situation is lamentable, but the specific part that pains me is that the lawsuit, wherein Snelling had claimed discrimination based on religion, which it, even though it's the part of it's part of his religion is the reason why he's doing bad science. It doesn't mean that the thing that he's trying to do isn't still bad science. And so you can reject bad science and still say, well, that's because it's based on your worldview without it being about your worldview. And, um, but, you know, he said that this was religious discrimination. He invoked the recent executive order on religious freedom um, and was ready to fight. But it was, the lawsuit has been withdrawn. It was withdrawn on June 28th because the National Park Service has decided to relent and grant his permit. And of course, what upsets me about this is several fold, but the fact that it allows the Alliance Defending Freedom to crow about a victory and suggest that they really are fighting for the rights of supposedly downtrodden Christians uh, is only second uh, to my largest and most concrete reason for being dismayed about this situation in the first place. 
This is the fact that Snelling, no matter what he says, has no intention of doing any actual science. Oh, he may conduct tests and form hypotheses and do everything that scientists do, but at the end of the day, he is going into the process with a fully dishonest worldview. Even if I don't find the evidence I think I will find, it wouldn't cause my core it wouldn't assault my core beliefs, Snelling told the Australian. Uh, he is originally Australian. Uh, we already have evidence that is consistent with a great flood that swept the world. So as you can see, he is very clear that he knows exactly what's going on. And therefore, there is no reason at all to change or adapt his feelings on the subject, even if he found something that contradicted his core beliefs, they're not going to change. The problem with that is that science is based on changing one's beliefs to fit the evidence, not forcing the evidence to fit one's belief. Snelling can play at being a scientist all he wants, but like his boss Ken Ham, he's not a true scientist and doesn't actually believe in the scientific method. He simply uses the prestige of science to mask his unmovable and frankly ridiculous worldview, that view of the world that is less than 10,000 years old. There are civilizations that were alive and well and doing all sorts of things more than 10,000 years ago. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to think that these people think that the world is so young and no amount of evidence will persuade them of anything different. And I just don't know <laughs> what to do about that because it's just so upsetting. Um, it's really this, this complete and utter aversion to fact and to truth and to understanding that things are a way that in some way you've convinced yourself contradict with a worldview that you have. Um, I don't care if you believe that God created the world, as long as you believe that the world was also as old as it actually is, that the universe was created the way that it was. I, I want you to understand the basic tenets of reality. And maybe that's unreasonable of me, but it's it's just something that I, I will have to live with that being unreasonable because it is important to me that people understand what is real and there are plenty of places where we can disagree about stuff, but something like that the world is 10,000 years old is so easily disproven as to be laughable. It's also, there's another, of course, sort of new, uh, new emergence of an old idea, which is something that has been distressing me and some of my friends, is the resurgence of people who believe that the earth is flat. And I don't want to talk about it too much because it's another absurd thing that we shouldn't have to talk about. But there is a growing number of people who believe that the earth is flat. And it's so absurd that some of them were convinced by a video that was made as a joke. And when the creators of the video said this was a joke, 
because they had already swallowed the belief, they refused to believe. They said, oh, no, you must be lying to us for some reason that we can't articulate. And um, it's really interesting because this idea is very much tied into it's very close to the idea that the earth is only, you know, six or 10,000 years old, because when asked about why, why is it important for the world to be flat and not a sphere? What people will tell you is that if the world is flat, then we're special. But if the world is a sphere, then we're not. And it's really interesting how that works out. Because people who believe that the world is only, you know, six to 10,000 years old also believe that we're special, that there is a God who created this place for us and made us special. But I would argue that we're special for so many other way, reasons and in so many other ways. The fact that we exist at all, given the fact that life, it turns out, is pretty tricky and that there is some real, there are really big obstacles to creating life on planets. And we're still not sure that there are other planets out there, at least in the local uh, region, that have life. That That is amazing. And it doesn't need to have non-reality-based things attached to it. We can find glory and awe and specialness in what really is. We don't need to append things to that. Okay, sorry, this is a bit soapboxy uh, today, but um, it's just there's several things that popped up that are kind of things that really, uh, you know, make my blood boil and make me want to talk about them. Um, but we should take a break because it is that time. So I am going to turn over to some PSAs and some uh, advertisements for other shows that you might want to listen to that are not me. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. 
Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Hey kids, it's Archimedes and Damn It Dave from Poppy Geekery. And what are we listening to, Dave? Where are we? <laughs> Sorry, long pause there. I didn't know you, you got to point to me. You have to like slap point me or something. Point to you. I said, we're going to do this. Is that okay? And you're like, yeah, that's fine. I did that and then you didn't do anything. <laughs> hey kids. What time is it? Sorry. <laughs> hey kids, it's Archie and Dave from Poppy Geekery. Where are we at, Dave? We're in Northampton. Listening. <laughs> it was so easy. It was so easy. It was so easy. It was so, it's written on paper for him. It's written oh on paper. What are we right. done? Oh, my God. Fire away. I'm ready. Go. Go. Okay. You sure? Go, Arch. All right. You can do it. <laughs> I can do it. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pothry Geekery. What are we doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Very good. <laughs> okay, and we are back. And so now we are going to talk about something on the sort of other side of not understanding that truth has value and importance so let's talk about the ridiculous saga of Gwyneth Paltrow's goop goop has become a veritable encyclopedia of dubious medical claims faux empowerment and dubious products sold to women in the name of health and wellness quote-unquote it has also become a rather high-profile target uh, for actual scientists, doctors, science advocates um, who are using it as an example of how pseudoscience has pervaded our consciousness. And others have also pointed out that the site seemingly only offers supposed empowerment and health to those with the money to afford it. Dr. Jen Gunter an OBGYN and blogger has been a rather prominent critic of Goop's advice recently. And apparently the Goop team has taken notice. They recently released a post arguing that Dr. Gunter's claims are unfounded. Or at least that's what they were aimed 
longing for. Instead, the Post is mostly a passive-aggressive tirade against Dr. Gunter, which spends time, and I'm not actually kidding here, scolding her for having the temerity to use the F-word in her blog post criticizing the website. Of course, what they failed to mention is that the F-bombing question was actually used as a response to their dear leader's use of the same word in a statement to the magazine Fast Company. Apparently, it's okay for Paltrow to use it, but not Dr. Gunter. Not only that, but the note but note the disingenuous way that her blog post on her personal blog is characterized. I have been in academic medicine for 40 years, and up until your posting, have never seen a medical discussion start or end with the F-bomb, Stephen Gundry, one of Goop's consulting doctors, wrote. Except he still hasn't. This wasn't a medical discussion. It was a blog post that was meant to be lighthearted but informative and again was actually responding to the use of the same word by Paltrow. And he even goes on to say, you know, someone once told me you should never write anything that you wouldn't want your mother or daughter to read. And maybe you should have your mother read this. And it just it just seemed so just mind-blowing to me how that this sort of tone policing was so important and that it really just completely sidestepped what Dr. Gunter was actually arguing. And of course, it's really weird that they've been doing this um, because it's very unclear that the negative press has actually made any impact on Goop's bottom line. They just had this big conference where people paid all sorts of money to do goopy stuff. And I don't understand why they're doing this, except for the fact that it makes their defense rather like those of other purveyors of dubious health advice, such as Mike Adams, the quote unquote health ranger and owner of the uh, web of just pseudoscientific everything. Uh, net, the website Natural News, and Joseph Mercola. And so I found it interesting that they chose to lead off with Dr. Gundry, in fact, um, specifically because his work was mentioned by Dr. Gunter really only in one offhand remark. And so Gundry, it seems, is very much a working credentialed doctor whose work on lectin could potentially have some basis in reality for certain patients. Now, it seems really interesting there that they chose him because I think that they knew that he was the one who had the most sort of credentialed gravitas. But it sort of backfires as far as I'm concerned, since he basically sounds like a stodgy old grandfather trying to scold a errant young woman, which is not a look that they want at all. And I was looking a little bit at the idea of lectin uh, having give, giving people problems with inflammation. And so the thing, though, is that the items that he suggests should be avoided are legumes, grains, and members of the nightshade family, such as tomatoes and potatoes. And these things are often heralded by other dietary scientists as healthy and nutritious components of a balanced diet. 
and again, regardless of this, his tone policing and obvious bias against Dr. Gunter, based largely from his statement on, again, the tone and not substance of her blog post, comes across largely defensive and not at all reassuring that they actually have some real argument against her. Um, sorry about that. A little bit of technical difficulties. Um, so I've been talking <laughs> about um, the Gwyneth Paltrow Goop website, and it turns out that they have become kind of a hotbed of pseudoscience. And so they've been having some issues recently because they are deciding to sort of hit back at their critics. And so, for instance, Dr. Jen Gunter, an OBGYN and blogger, has become a rather prominent critic of Goop's advice. And apparently the Goop team has taken notice. They recently released a post arguing that Dr. Gunter's claims are unfounded, or at least that's what they were aiming for. And so it's just it's just a weird thing that they're doing. Um, and so it really another major component of this goop post is that it employs what others have already referred to as the uh, sort of the Dr. Oz gambit. They suggest that they are merely trying to empower women to have control over their bodies and their health and suggest that opposing Goop's message is tantamount to opposing women's empowerment. But nothing could be further from the truth. They argued that their critics are being dismissive of discourse, of questions from patients, of practices that women might find empowering or healing, of daring to poke at a long-held belief. Seems like it just seems like the most dangerous practice of all. Where would we be if we still all believed in female hysteria instead of orgasm equality, that smoking didn't cause lung cancer, if every nutrition nutritionist today saw the original food pyramid as gospel? This kind of hyperbole tries to make Goop into some sort of crusader, when in fact it's nothing more than a lifestyle website that sells overpriced, dubious products to bored middle and upper class women. And so they go on to suggest that Dr. Gunter is not into women taking ownership of female sexual pleasure because she has the temerity to suggest, for instance, that women shouldn't put jade eggs into their vagina. And she notes that jade is a porous rock that might collect bacteria and thus can cause more harm than good. Most OBGYNs, of which I must remind you again that Dr. Gunter is one, would also note that if you are not performing pelvic floor muscle exercises correctly, you can actually, again, do more damage than good. And finally, they roll out very clearly their, really, the crux of their hypocritical defense. The Goop editors write that, we simply want information. We want autonomy over our health. That's why we do unfiltered Q&As, so that you can hear directly from doctors. We see no reason to interpret or influence what they're saying, to tell you what to think. 
they go on to note, our primary place is in addressing people, women in particular, who are tired of feeling less than great, who are looking for solutions. These women are not hypochondriacs, and they should not be dismissed or marginalized. Except again, what they are doing is not empowering to women. It's exploitative and manipulative. They sell faux answers to women at exorbitant prices, just like every other pseudoscience website pushing health and wellness cures. Goop may make it look more pretty and stylish, but they're no more helping women than the likes of Adams or Mercola or even Oz. Women deserve real quality evidence-based medicine and there is real work to be done in the medical world to create a level playing field in terms of both education and treatment. But selling jade vaginal eggs and telling people that they're full of toxins, but here, just buy some of this tea or this homeopathic nostrum and you'll be just fine, is not doing anything to help women feel better about themselves in any kind of realistic way. It's just naked exploitative capitalism. And that's what it really comes down to. This is capitalism dressed up in some sort of pretty dress. But at the end of the day, it's just capitalism. They are selling a product and they are selling a product that appeals to women's fears, to their insecurity, to their ideas that they're not good enough or they're missing out on something or there's some way that they can have this magic pill or powder that suddenly will make them better. And I think that that's really, really just unconscionable. And I think that it's really ridiculous to try and say that this is about empowering women and giving them choices, where, wherein it's really just about selling them something. And speaking of that, <laughs> let's talk about a recent kerfuffle uh, wherein the non-GMO project tweeted a fringe news item that hadn't been verified, suggesting that GMO corn seeds were being shipped to Haiti from a humanitarian group. Now, of course, the non-GMO project is the purveyors of those terrible little uh, stamps that you see on all sorts of products, including things like water and salt that don't actually have any organic elements in them. Uh, you see the little butterfly that says non-GMO. And um, of course, that's meaningless piffle, but we'll put that aside for the second. So this article, uh, since deleted after criticism from scientists, suggested that Bill Gates, a favorite boogeyman of these sorts of conspiracies was involved in shipping transgenic corn seeds that do nothing but make the soil addicted to drugs and several other things. Now, some suggested even burning the shipment, which was again humanitarian aid being offered to one of the poorest countries in the world simply because it contained transgenic seeds. Except there was an even bigger issue, as noted by Dr. Ken Volta, professor and chairman of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Gainesville, and frankly a rock star of the science-based food information world. It turns out that the high-yielding Hugo seeds had not been genetically modified in a lab. They were created 
especially for growing conditions in Haiti by conventional crossbreeding. These anti-GMO activists are so eager to reject 21st century crop technology, in many cases specifically designed for the region's difficult climate or pest challenges, that even conventionally bred donations become suspect. Now, as I always say, I'm a socialist and I don't have any love for capitalism, but you can't believe that any that all acts of humanitarian aid are secretly acts of corporate greed that will have strings attached and consequences. Most of the time, the organizations are not affiliated with corporations, and those that are, it's more that the corporations use the good press from looking noble and self-sacrificing to extend their market share in first world countries. It doesn't seem it, it makes no sense to exploit people like those in Haiti who live on about $1.25 a day. Haitians have a tough time growing anything, even with commercial inputs. The average production for an acre of land in Haiti is one ton compared to three to six tons in other areas of the world. Hugo corn yields several tons per acre and is high in protein. It was developed by CIMMYT, um, or in English, which again, uh, much like in Holland, does not follow precisely. Uh, it is the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, and that is a organization in Mexico. And so they introduced the seeds to Haiti in 2007, um, and they were introduced by maize researcher Hugo Cordova. And so, as you might under, might think, it was named after him. And it was actually named after him by the farmers because it grew so well. But in the last 10 years, without the ability to control crossbreeding, seeds being sold as Hugo seeds are not the pure Hugo seed stock that they once were. And so these aid organizations decided to produce a new batch of seeds to revitalize the crops. Hugo seeds come with assistance in their propagation and training in their cultivation because they are, once again, humanitarian aid and not based on corporate greed. As founder of Science 2.0 and the president of the American Council on Science and Health has opined, anti-GMO activists hate corporations more than they love people. No better example of this can be seen than this knee-jerk reaction against seeds meant to help some of the poorest people with some of the worst growing conditions in the world. And we see this over and over as when Vandana Shiva suggested rejecting GMO seeds by Bangladeshis after devastating floods. And so for the anti-GMO activists, politics and purity seem to be more important than actual human suffering. <sighs> All right, so we're going to actually end tonight, though, on a sort of upswing. And so despite a rise in doomsday predictions, including a recent New York Magazine article, uh, climate change, which I know we don't talk about much here because I feel pretty doomsday about it, I'm going to tell you that it's not as terrible as at least these people are making it out to be. And so it's still very bad and it's a pressing global issue. But I mean, basically, this article suggests that the world will be uninhabitable by 2100, which is just 
frankly, does not follow from the science currently. And so other people, such as the climate scientist Michael Mann, have noted that overstating the risks can lead to a real sense of loss and paralysis and can actually lead people to do less rather than more. It's just as damaging as denying global warming. And so despite the current administration's anti-science position on the subject, many other players, including many in the United States, are continuing to move toward a cleaner, safer, and less polluted future. Most countries on Earth have realized that we must act, and there is much that can be done in the private sector and at home. A new study in Environmental Research Letters enumerates which life choices can most impact our individual carbon footprints. The science tells us basically the future of a good life on planet Earth depends on reducing climate pollution by about 90% by 2050, sustainability professor and study co-author Kimberly Nicholas told Gizmodo. A lot of people recognize this and are ready to act, but most don't know what to do. For people in the developed world, there are four really high-impact lifestyle changes that can reduce your overall carbon footprint. And they are. <laughs> Eat a plant-based diet. Take one fewer transatlantic flight per year. Live car-free and have fewer children. Even just one fewer child makes a huge difference. Now, I have to say, I'm doing pretty good on that list already. Uh, though I have to admit, um, I do love to drive. It's I, I feel bad about it. I know that, you know, I should do it less, but on the weekends, I just love to drive. I mean, I take the bus to my workplace most days during the week, but during the weekends, I do love to drive and I do like to eat meat, um, but I'm, I'm working towards it. I don't like flying. Well, I don't generally have anywhere to go that's involves flying, but I prefer a train any day if it's in the U.S., um, but another big important change is that you can make sure that you're getting green energy for your home. And of course, no one is expecting everyone to adopt these changes overnight, though doing so would result in a huge net positive for the planet. But you can start small, eat less meat, make sure your energy is green, and occasionally forego the car. Foregoing the car are a very good start. And, you know, if you really want something to take care of, the researchers found that not having a dog didn't really make all that large of a difference. And so there had been a study a while back that basically claimed that if you wanted to do something for the environment, you should not have a dog. Um, but the researchers found that that really wasn't a huge issue. Um, having a dog is perfectly fine. Um, personally, we have three cats and they are a delight um, at least when they're not trying to kill one another. So there is hope and there is a way that we as individuals can help make the world a better place without having to become, you know, ascetic monks. We can still do things, but there are things that obviously, and most of them are pretty self-evident, that can really help reduce our carbon footprint. Um, so yeah, that is going to wrap things up for tonight. I didn't get a chance to talk about Smart Ravens, um, but we can probably talk about that next week. Um, I think that we should be 
all very pleased that uh, ravens and other birds don't have opposable thumbs because it's turning out to be that they are pretty darn smart in ways that we never thought possible. All right, so um, that is it for tonight. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics and then Subculture coming up after Civil Politics at 8 p.m. Have a great night.